0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.
1: Hello, friends, and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm. I'm a senior fellow at Family Research Council, sitting in for Tony today. So glad to be with you. Tony will be back with you on Monday. and You can catch this and every edition of Washington Watch at TonyPerkins.com. Quick reminder, as we approach the end of the year, you have the chance to have your gift to Family Research Council doubled between now and December 31st. You can do so by calling 800-225-4008 or visiting TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's 800-225-4008 or visit TonyPerkins.com. This and everything we do at FRC is because of friends like you, and we are so grateful for it. Today on the program, what are we going to learn? Here's some of the stories. Arkansas was the first state in the nation to pass legislation prohibiting gender concealment surgeries and hormone treatments for minors. Now, the ACLU sued, as they are inclined to do, claiming that the law was unconstitutional. Now, the trial in that case has just concluded. We'll tell you what happened in our conversation with Janice Heisel from the Epoch Times. In addition, the runoff election in the Georgia Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker is Tuesday. What's the latest? And if the Democrats will control the Senate either way, does it even matter? Well, the answer is yes, and we'll tell you why. One of the concerns over the effort to redefine marriage is the impact on Christian ministries. We'll talk to one of those ministries about how they are responding to the looming threat of litigation this new law would bring. All of that coming up later in the program. But our headline for today, the National Defense Authorization Act, which specifies the annual budget for the military, has not yet been finalized for the fiscal year 2023. And this is one of those must-pass pieces of legislation that Congress needs to address every single year. Now, the military vaccine mandate remains a sticking point for approval for many GOP senators. Yet, the Biden administration has shown no inclination to consider dropping the COVID jab mandate. Also, as observers of Congress know, the NDAA has long been a cudgel for Democrats to slip in controversial policy agenda items, such as items related to abortion, and in this case, banking protections for marijuana distributors. What else should we be monitoring in the NDAA as this congressional turn wraps up this month? Joining me now to discuss all of it is Travis Weber. He's the Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs at FRC. Travis, good to see you today. Thank you. Now, we're going to get into all things military here. But before we get into the NDAA, I want to follow up on a story that we've been discussing this week from the academies, specifically the Naval Academy, has denied that they are withholding diplomas from unvaccinated cadets. But they do admit that no religious exemptions have been granted. What's going on there?
2: Yeah, I mean, they, they have not fully disclosed um, to the, the satisfaction of the members of Congress, including Congressman Stuby Greg Stuby, who have asked them for information. They've not fully disclosed um, the, their processes and, and procedures, provided full transparency, provided clarity on... On what they 're doing with regard to the withholding of diplomas from midshipmen who refused to get vaccinated, I think you know the, the context around this story kind of speaks for itself though when we 're at this point in the uh, the, the covid post covid situation in america uh, we 've got uh, litigation uh, tying up uh, military vaccine mandates in court, uh, and the military has a crisis on its hands in terms of the recruitment and retention of of service members, and you know, which gets at the health of our military and the ability uh, to defend ourselves from the very threatening adversaries around the world. So, when you look at all that, and you look at the the uh, lack of transparency and what they are even doing with after having invested uh, education in these midshipmen for four years, and um, and now apparently willing to at least withhold it or possibly flush that down the drain by um, by not graduating them and and allowing them to serve uh, because of their desire to be um, to not be vaccinated. It's a real it's a real problem situation we're looking at. And, you know, as someone who graduated from the Naval Academy myself um, over 20 years ago, back in 2002, it's it's I'm ashamed to to look at the, the, the the overall situation and really the the really sad spot we're in as a country where we're focused so much on something like this and so negligent about the many other things contributing to the uh, lack of health in our military.
1: To that point, there are members of the U.S. Senate who have said they will fight on this issue and perhaps hold up the NDAA. And we've seen this many times in in this narrowly divided Senate that we are currently operating under, you have to get 60 uh, votes in order to move a piece of legislation to a vote. There's thought that there might be Republicans who are willing to hold this up unless those mandates are withdrawn by the White House. Do you think that really will happen?
2: It, it could. I mean, there's a lot of focus on these, the, the mandates justifiably, you know, the discussion that the country's had around the vaccine is one thing, but when it comes to forcing people to get the shot uh, at forcing uh, them uh, forcing an invasive process on their body in light of the the discussion we 've had as a country, the lack of full effectiveness of the vaccine it's it's kind of absurd, so I think the attention is merited we 'll see if it 's enough to put a hold on it you know as you've as you've noted the pressure to pass the National Defense Authorization Act is immense because of, you know, the the, the desire to be seen as supportive of the troops. That's understandable. But we need to not let that be pressure, uh, let that uh, be, um, you know, something which causes us to to buckle under the pressure of passing it and allowing problematic provisions to be attached, whatever they may be. You know, and here at Family Research Council, we are concerned that uh, pro-abortion provisions, anti-family provisions, uh, gender identity related provisions, um, and and the, the, the liberalization and the, the increased legitimization of marijuana might be inserted into the bill. These are all things we're keeping an eye on, and uh, we want to be sure that we have a clean NDAA, one that that's actually funds the military, supports our troops as not a vehicle for unrelated policy preferences.
1: And what we're up against is this tendency that has been in D.C. for a long time, of course, to take a piece of legislation that is important and should have bipartisan support and slip a bunch of controversial things in it uh, to create. Partisan uh, issues with the bill, and then try to accuse your opponents who might object to that to objecting uh, to the underlying idea of, for example, funding the military, which really nobody opposes funding the military. It's just what are the other things they want you to fund while you fund the military. Now, Travis, Senator Ted Cruz spoke this week about why he thinks the Biden administration. Continues to insist on COVID vaccines for service members, despite the evidence that they don't stop transmissions of COVID and that the military age population really is not especially vulnerable to this anyway. Here's what he said about the reason the administration is insisting on this. Let's play clip four.
3: Will Chuck Schumer come out and say, you see, Republicans have suddenly decided they don't want to defend this nation? Of course. And that's actually where it's going to come down to you guys. It's going to come down. To the press corps to to report fairly. The reason we're fighting this fight is because we care deeply about defending the fighting men and women of the military. And what the Democrats are doing to, to, to them is wrong. It is unjustifiable. It is immoral. We are fighting this fight because we take our obligation to stand with those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines very seriously.
2: Travis, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, I think he makes a great point. You know, and we've all, many of us, I think, have heard instances, whether friends or family of members by now, of of uh, someone who really would like to serve in the military, but um, but but just can't take this social indoctrination, totally unrelated to to fighting wars, indeed harmful to our focus on fighting wars. The social indoctrination the wokeness that's being pushed, gender ideology, uh, the, including, including forcing service members to be vaccinated in light of what we now know about the entire COVID uh, situation. In light of all that, it's understandable that people are saying, well, I'm not sure if I want to enter into the military. I don't know if it's worth the hassle. Yeah. And when we're saying that, when people who otherwise are patriotic and want to serve the country are saying that, we know we have a military crisis on our hands. And the people pushing these woke ideologies, pushing this agenda on the military, are the ones to blame for that.
1: Yeah, Travis, we've talked here about the issue within the NDAA that the Republicans might raise about these mandates. And will they insist that these mandates be dropped as a condition of, of providing support to the NDAA and allowing it to uh, advance and be passed On the other hand, Democrats are also trying to slip some things into this. Now, they're referring uh, to one piece of that that's become controversial. It's called the Safe Banking Act. And, of course, everybody wants safe banking. So why is it controversial that they would be putting the Safe Banking Act into the NDAA? Yeah, I mean, again, the name is
2: where we have to zero it on, right? Because in actuality, it's not safe, and it doesn't really have to do with banking. It has to do with the liberalization and legitimization of marijuana in our society. This is something that should not be legitimized. The evidence increasingly is showing the the, the harmful, destructive effects of of the marijuana of today, the potent marijuana of today on individuals and families. You look to Colorado for evidence along these lines. So why do our nation 's leaders want to legitimize this
1: incre- further and further? The bill. Jarvis? You know, and I think you were just going to get there. I'm, I'm trying to understand what does the Safe Banking Act have to do with marijuana? Yeah, the, the, it, it,
2: the Safe Banking Act would, would enable banks and the financial system to process transactions related to marijuana more easily. And marijuana has been legalized in a number of states. But this would be a federal action that would liberalize um, marijuana further by facilitating its spread through the banking system. It's unacceptable because... The harms of marijuana are beyond clear. We should not be spreading it around further, increasingly legitimizing it. This bill would do that. So as a way to get it passed, we're seeing possible effort to attach it to the National Defense Authorization Act that's clearly troubling.
1: Travis, sticking on this theme of the military for one more moment, a recent poll by the Reagan Defense Forum found that 62% of Americans think the military has become overly politicized. Can this be fixed?
2: I think it can, but it's going to take some serious um, uh, changes, going to take a U-turn on some of the things we've been doing as a country, some of the things I've already mentioned, pushing social agendas through the military instead of focusing on military preparation and readiness. I think this discussion is is being had right now in the country. I think people are aware of this. It's going to take a change at the top in terms of the culture of our military. Um, the messages that are coming from the top about what people should be focused on in the military. If people feel the the pressure to comply with these social agendas that are being pushed by the Biden administration and others, they're going to, they themselves, you know, they're probably going to either bear with it or choose not to serve. That's not, that's not effective. What we need is a U-turn on the policies that, thus welcoming people who are patriotic and want to serve and don't want to deal with these crazy policies, but rather are there to serve their country, we need to do that. It's going to take some
1: time, but I think it's clearly something that needs to be done. It is in the national interest, and we're seeing over and over the way in which uh, people are less interested in joining the military and the long-term effect that's going to have, not to mention the readiness of those who are currently in the military. Uh, This is metastasizing. It's creating problems. Uh, It is our obligation to continue monitoring this. Travis, thanks for being with us today. Thank
4: you.
1: Coming up, the trial over the nation's first-ever law preventing doctors' from from performing experimental gender surgeries happened in Arkansas. It's now over, we'll tell you how it went when we come back here on Washington Watch.
3: Would you like to spend consistent time in God's word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible.
5: Learn more at frc.org forward slash life.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Tony will be back with you in the chair on Monday. Testimony concluded yesterday in a lawsuit challenging Arkansas's SAFE Act. The bill passed in 2021 to prevent doctors from performing experimental transgender surgeries on children. Arkansas SAFE Act is the first of its kind in the nation, and it has led other state legislators to consider similar bills. enforcement of the law has been on hold pending the results of this legal challenge from the ACLU. Joining me now from Arkansas is reporter Janice Heisel. She provided stellar coverage from the courtroom throughout this trial for the Epoch Times. Janice, welcome to Washington Watch.
4: Thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful compliment.
1: No, we are glad to have you. This is an important, it's an underrated issue, but this issue uh, continues to capture the nation's attention. And I think this case there in Arkansas, where the courts are considering the legality of this law for the first time, is an important one. You were in the courtroom, you monitored monitored this. What were your impressions?
4: Well, one of the biggest issues about this case is that there, there's so much emotion tied up in it, but yet there's a lot of science to argue as well. And so it's kind of like science and emotion all wrapped together, which is kind of a, a really um, a difficult mix.
1: And, and tell us about those stories, um, because the, what, what's the scientific argument at play? Now, the ACLU brought this lawsuit. What was the basis of their legal argument? Was it science or was it emotion?
4: Well, again, it's it's kind of all wrapped together. However, they did have experts who were testifying about the science, different people, uh, lay people. For example, um, uh, Karen's gender-identifying children and their parents were testifying about the emotional aspect of it. The science part of it, um, the crux of it is that the ACLU's experts are saying, look, these children are suffering, and the suffering – is alleviated they say when these procedures are allowed when they're when these children who say that you know for example I'm a girl but I think I'm a boy that they are allowed to undergo these hormone procedures such as puberty blocking hormones cross sex hormones and then ultimately surgery to for example remove breasts that they don't feel you know reflects who they are they they think that that's you know, they wanted to look more masculine because they're a girl, and they they say they want to look masculine. And so, the, those experts are testifying that you know, here are studies that show that after a certain period of time, the the you know children or minors who undergo these procedures say that they are happier. Now, the criticism of that those studies um, is that they don't seem to follow the the, um, the subjects very long. Um, and also, some of the way that the subjects are selected, the, the research design is viewed as being quote, very low quality or low quality research. The other side disputes that show that these um, distressed teens are feeling better about themselves, and the concern is that they would commit suicide if they don't alleviate that. But again, that's disputed whether it helps that at all either.
1: Now, Janice, what you described there in terms of the arguments in the court sound very similar to the arguments being made in the, made in the court of public opinion and the arguments that were made in the legislature. And one would think that the legal arguments are going to be slightly different than the political arguments what is the what determination is the judge being asked to make? Are they just going to is the judge just looking at the arguments and saying, I agree with you and not you? Or is there a legal question that the that the judge is going to answer, irrespective of how they personally feel about the, the merits of the science?
4: That's a great question. Well, the 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 what the judge is trying to decide is the constitutionality and the ACLU in the lawsuit contends that the law should be found unconstitutional on grounds that it's not right to allow somebody to who is transgender to not have access to the same medical procedures that are allowed to non-transgender identifying people. So that is the crux of their argument on the constitutionality. There are a couple of other points as well. That seems to be the main one.
1: So essentially, if I'm understanding what you just said, that other people can have their breasts removed, therefore transgender kids should be able to have their breasts removed? Is that be the crux of the argument?
4: It, in my understanding of it, yes, that they, they feel like that it's not right to allow these procedures to be done for other purposes, and it's discriminatory to disallow them for transgender purposes.
1: Now, as you followed this case, you reported that there were testimonies from detransitioners that were very uh, important as well as potentially moving in this case. What was the role that they were playing in these legal arguments?
4: Well, of course, it depends on how much weight, if any, the judge will choose to um, put on that testimony. The two people who testified on behalf of the state of Arkansas had procedures done as adults. But it seemed to be an attempt to show the judge look, this is the future that young people might face if they do undergo these procedures. And both of these people testified about round after round of medical complications, continuing regret despite each and every phase they went through to try to change their bodies to fit what they believed was their gender. And ultimately, these people returned to the gender that matches the biological sex that they were born with.
1: Janice, any sense of which direction the judge is going to go in this case?
4: I never want to predict in any type of a case how a judge or a jury would decide. That would not be my role. But I will say that that the judge definitely has a lot of information to consider hundreds and thousands of pages of different legal filings, briefs, depositions, testimony. And the final phase is going to be for the judge to see what each side argues uh, in legal briefs that will be filed sometime soon, I believe. They, they, there was no timeline for those briefs to be filed, but because it is before a judge, they didn't do the traditional closing arguments that would be held in most cases. going to do that in writing. And so I do think that those briefs will give us a better idea about the legal standards that they want the judge to look at.
1: Janice Heisel, Ebook Times, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And I think it's likely that we're not going to hear the end of this legal matter anytime soon. Coming up next runoff runoff elections in georgia we'll tell you everything you need to know when we come back stay with us here on washington watch
5: are you a university student do you know a university student specifically one who wants to grow as a christian leader to positively influence public policy and the culture look no further
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony. This Tuesday, the runoff election for a Georgia Senate seat will take place, pitting Republican Herschel Walker against incumbent Senator Democrat Raphael Warnock. The Democrats have already won the Senate majority. Regardless of the outcome in this race, it has major implications in determining control of important Senate committees. What can we expect next week in the Peach State? Joining me now to discuss this is Cole Muzio. He's the president of the Georgia based Frontline Policy Action, and he's the best looking guy in Georgia. Cole, good to see you today.
0: Man, I just, I just wake up every day hoping and praying I can be as handsome as you, Joseph.
1: Well, it's good to see you, my friend. You know, All of us, when normal people who are not in runoff elections in Georgia, you know, we wait for the end of election season so our TVs no longer have campaign ads and so our mailbox are no longer stuffed full with mailers. Does that just continue for you guys in this case?
0: It seems like it's nonstop. I mean, we had the runoffs in 2021, so why not do it again this go round? I mean, it's 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 been nonstop. Thankfully, our our election law, which has been rated the number one election integrity law in the country in light of what happened in 2020, SB 202 has sh- has uh, the runoff time from nine weeks to four weeks. So this week it's only been this go round. It's only been four weeks of blistering ads and nonstop political action. But uh, thankfully, that will come to an end on Tuesday. But that also means that Christians only have today and then Tuesday, election day, to go out and vote and make their voices heard in this election.
1: What are you expecting out of this race? Has anything changed in the runoff portion of this, or is this essentially an extension of what was happening for months uh, leading up to November?
0: Here's the big challenge. Right, Right now, polls are showing that Raphael Warnock's ahead. I think the latest poll was the CNN poll. That was 52 to 48 Right now, the numbers that we're looking at as we're seeing who shows up to vote in this election shows a, a skew towards Warnock. I mean, Warnock's got to look at these numbers and feel pretty good. The big difference that is concerning is that Brian Kemp is not on the ballot uh, like he was in the November general election, which Brian Kemp won by seven plus points. Uh, big turnout win over Stacey Abrams. Brian Kemp is helping Herschel Walker this go round, But the key for people to remember is they have got to go vote, whether you like Herschel or not, and that that's been part of the big challenge. Is you know there there, there are a lot of there were a lot of Kemp Warnock voters, there are a lot of peop, Kemp voters that skipped on down the ballot. We have to make sure that people realize, even if you think that there are two two bad choices on the ballot, and some people love Herschel Walker, some people think we've got two bad choices on the ballot. Even if you think there are two bad choices on the ballot, you have to remember there's one evil choice that we know is on the ballot. Raphael Warnock supports abortion on demand. He supports biological males playing girls sports. He's a pastor who says that Easter is about your own self-discovery, not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, We have to make sure that we oppose Raphael Warnock. And so even if you're not inclined to be super enthusiastic about either candidate, this election really matters. The differences between the candidates are stark. And you have to show up and vote. And so Election Day is going to be huge. And today is the last day of early voting. So uh, Christians have to make, make sure to show up either today or Tuesday, or we could find ourselves in a 41-49 Senate, uh, which looks starkly different than even what we have today.
1: Now, Cole, those are some strong words from you. And, of course, not everyone agrees with you. One of those who disagrees with you would be former President Barack Obama, who has been campaigning uh, for Raphael Warnock and against Herschel Walker. I want to play a bit of what he had to say about this campaign and get your reaction. Let's play clip one. So I'm
3: talking about what a good football player he is. But I also have that acknowledge that I do not think he had either the confidence
7: The character, the track record of our service that would justify him representing Georgia in the United States
0: Senate. Now, Cole, what's your reaction to that? Well, first of all, we got to remember, why is Barack Obama there? Barack Obama is there because Joe Biden can't come here. Uh, Joe Biden has a radical liberal agenda that Georgia has radi- uh, strongly opposed. Only 40% of Georgians approve of Joe Biden's job performance. And uh, Raphael Warnock has voted with R- Joe Biden just about 100% of the time. And so bringing Joe Biden here is a, is a reminder to people that Raphael Warnock is nothing more than a rubber stamp for the Joe Biden agenda, which Georgians oppose. But Barack Obama, point, you know, make, makes a point. Experience matters. And here's what we know about Raphael Warnock's experience. He's run a, he's run a camp that's been under investigation. Uh, he's run an apartment complex out of his church uh, that uh, is evicting people uh, on, on low-rent housing. And Raphael Warnock has spent the last two years in the Senate opposing everything that Georgians values. He, he has uh, supported the Joe Biden agenda, which has uh, jacked up inflation. Uh, he has opposed life even up to birth. Uh, and he has uh, supported the idea that biological sex is is just a construct. This is a pastor that opposes every value that we have. And, yes, the experience that uh, Barack Obama points out is a valid point, Uh, but we need to remember what uh, Raphael Warnock's experience is, and it's not something that we can send back to the United States Senate.
1: And one point before I let you go, I do have one more question. But I want to emphasize kind of the, the, the question here about does this even matter? Because the Democrats are going to be in control of the Senate. If if uh, Senator Warnock wins, it would be 51 to 49. If Herschel Walker wins, it would be 50-50. However, the Democrats would win that tiebreaker. The difference would be if it's a 50-50 Senate, that means all of the committees in the Senate are 50-50. And that means it's much easier to stop bad legislation at the committee level than it is if the Democrats have a majority. Majority in the Senate body itself, and then they would therefore have a majority of every single committee. It's a little bit inside baseball, politically speaking, but it is a really big deal when it comes to advancing legislation. If the Republicans have the same number on every committee, it's much easier for them to stop harmful things. Now, Cole, in about 30 seconds, what are you encouraging people in Georgia to do?
0: I'm encouraging them to go vote. Make, make sure they're showing up either today or on Tuesday to cast their vote for Herschel Walker. Make sure that you're t- telling all your friends to go to the same. Talk about it on Sunday. Look, you're, you're going to run across people in church that are not enthusiastic about either candidate. But make sure that you are telling them that their Bible, uh, that, that Scripture is clear on uh, the positions of the candidates. And they need to make sure to go vote, exercise the biblical citizenship, and go vote for Herschel Walker, uh, who takes positions that align with our values.
1: Cole Frontline Policy Action. Thanks for being with us.
0: Thank you, brother. Appreciate you and uh, FRC. We'll see you soon.
1: Coming up next, our weekly worldview segment and a conversation with a Christian ministry threatened by the new marriage law. We'll talk about it when we come back. Stay with us.
6: What is biblical masculinity? In our culture of gender confusion, there aren't many examples of godly manhood.
5: Visit FRC.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. As Washington Watch viewers and listeners know, the U.S. Senate voted this week to codify into federal law the 2015 Supreme Court decision that redefines the definition of marriage. And in significant ways, they did much more than just codify that decision. As we've discussed, despite the claims of some senators, the bill does not protect religious liberty for individuals and institutions with a biblical view of marriage. Now, this sad reality will be especially felt within faith-based adoption foster care agencies, making them potentially a target for frivolous litigation and possibly ending their ability to help children find homes. Joining me now to discuss this is Herbie Newell. He's the president and executive director of Lifeline Children's Services. Herbie, welcome to the program. Thanks
8: for having me, and thanks for tackling this very important subject and uh, this disheartening bill that's made its way through the Senate. Yeah.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. We're thankful for your voice in this, but uh, before we get into your thoughts on the bill, just tell us what Lifeline Children's Services does.
8: Yeah, sure. We're an adoption, foster care, orphan care ministry uh, based here in the United States, but working in 25 countries around the world. Uh, we help place children uh, in the government systems, into f- homes where they can have a mom and a dad and be able to to seek what's best for their future. Uh, Also, we are placing children who have been lovingly placed by their birth mothers into homes and then around the world helping equip the global church to really wake up to caring for the 153 million orphans of the world. And so our heartbeat is to connect children, vulnerable children, vulnerable families, and vulnerable women to the resources they need to thrive and survive.
1: And this is exactly what the church should be doing. Now, you've expressed concern about this legislation. Tell us what your concerns are.
8: Yeah, well, I think whenever we tinker with something as foundational as marriage, it brings about a long-lasting impact, not just on our society, but especially on children. You know, in the United States of America, the whole reason that we legalized marriage was for the protection of children and the flourishing of children. And so it was never meant to codify the wants, the desires, or the the relationships of individuals. It was always meant to have a mechanism by which we were protecting children. And so when you rearrange, rewrite when you uh, tamper with something as traditional as bedrock to the flourishing of the community as marriage, ultimately vulnerable children become that much more vulnerable. And so we're speaking out because this is so important that, that even though our Congress is trying to rewrite history and rewrite marriage and civilization, that as people, we need to go back and make sure that children, the most vulnerable are those that are being protected.
1: I do find it a bit ironic that uh, we are very concerned about the ecosystems of wetlands across the country. And we would say we can't remove a plankton. We can't allow the temperature of the water to change in any way because all of these things are codependent upon each other. Yet when it comes to the ecosystem of the family, we seem to think that all of the individual parts are irrelevant to the health of the whole. And we're happy to remove a mother, happy to remove a father uh, if it meets the eno- emotional needs of, uh, of the individuals involved. And really the family, as God designed it, is an ecosystem. And everything is mutually dependent upon each other to be to be healthy. But and you've seen this um, firsthand because your work and your ministry is dealing with the fallout of the decisions that are made by people who have rejected ultimately God's design for human sexuality and the family. And you've expressed that well. Are you primarily concerned with the the effect that this legislation? We'll have on the family or on you as an organization and your ability to kind of carry out your mission in a way that's consistent with your faith.
8: Yeah, well, I'll tell you this. Uh, we won't compromise our mission and what the Lord has called us to do. And so my concern is to fall out on the family. You know, I think certainly organizations are worried, and, and there there will be a much more litigious society that's built around this. But, you know, we're going to continue to do what the Lord's called us to do, and we're going to continue to work hard uh, to bring hope and healing to vulnerable children and vulnerable families. But our our society will continue to decay, and there's been a long war against humanity, uh, and and we see that in the abortion debate a war against procreation and humanity and flourishing of, of of life. But we see this even deadlier, I believe, uh, with the redefinition of marriage when truly we're trying to redefine what does a child need. And so my worry is that the vulnerable are going to become more vulnerable. We're going to see more broken families. We're going to see more children without the stability and the support that they need. And so I hope that we won't make our talking points about our religious institutions, but we'll go back and make our talking points about what's so detrimental to future generations.
1: I think that's a really powerful point, and I, and I appreciate you. Uh, the, the first thing that you said there is we're not going to change, and, and it brings to mind Daniel chapter 3 and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were just threatened with the fiery furnace, and what they said to King Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Our God can save you from, save us from your hand, but even if he doesn't, we are not going to worship your idols, and I just want to commend you for that uh, because I think that's exactly the kind of attitude that is ultimately going to change this country. That's what God used to change uh, Babylon in that case and the heart of the king. So I want to affirm you in that. What message do you have to other pastors, ministry leaders who might find themselves in a similar situation?
8: Yeah, I would tell any ministry leader and pastor, I think in this environment, unfortunately, we've seen a lot that have capitulated and allowed society to change the fabric of the message, the fabric of who we are, but there is great message and great hope in, first, the God of the Bible. He is the one that created marriage, created family. He is the one that made us male and female, and we don't need to compromise on what God has done, but we need to stay true to that. We speak truth, but we do so in love, and so truth without love it is hurtful and hateful. Love without truth is no love at all. And so we need to go forward, not conforming to the society, but being the the ones that come like a like a thermostat and change society for the better and ultimately for the glory of God.
1: Amen to that. Herbie Newell, President and Executive Director of Lifeline Children's Services. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for your courage, your service to the uh, the children of our country and to the church broadly. Greatly appreciate you.
8: Thanks for having me.
1: He makes just such an important point there that there is lots of conversation about religious freedom, and rightly so. But ultimately, our conversation and our concern over this issue of marriage shouldn't just be about our ability to speak freely, though, of course, that matters. But realizing that the downstream consequences of this are going to be felt most acutely by children if we choose to embrace the fiction uh, that it doesn't matter who we, uh, what we do and with whom we do it. And anything can be a family as long as the adults are fulfilled and everyone is consenting. That is not the way God organized the family, and that is not the recipe uh, that will lead to a family that is strong and healthy healthy, and flourishing. Now, continuing our discussion on the so-called Respect for Marriage Act, since the 2015 Supreme Court decision, there has been an effort by some in the church to downplay the marriage debate or even ignore the issue altogether. They seem glad that the issue was ceded to the court, and so they did not have to take a stand. It's reasonable to conclude that those voices wishing we could all just move on will be amplified now that Congress has codified the court's decision. But it's important that we not move on from discussing marriage. This is a discipleship issue as much as a persuasion issue in all culture. And joining me now for our weekly worldview segment to discuss all of that is David Kloss, And He's, of course, the senior director for biblical worldview at the Family Research Council. David, welcome to Washington Watch.
7: Hey, great to be with you, Joseph.
1: Now, we've covered this all week on the program in various ways. I just want to get your personal reaction. When you, when you saw what happened in the Senate, there was some hope that, that, the Senate Republic, that three of those 12 Senate Republicans could be uh, convinced not to advance this legislation if it did not contain those religious liberty protections. That did not happen. It did advance. It now moves to the House next week, where it is expected to pass. What's your reaction to all of it?
7: Yeah, I have to admit, Joseph, I'm very disappointed. I-, I thought that the arguments on our side, just on the religious liberty angle, were very compelling. Uh, again, you and I have talked about this before, but uh, things such as creating a private right to action and, and other things that are going to put uh, religious organizations at jeopardy. Anyone who holds uh, beliefs rooted in the Bible on marriage and sexuality, uh, that's really problematic. Um, and so, yes, I- I'm disappointed um, but I think I'm most disappointed in the fact that probably that sometime next week, the United States is going to enshrine in our law uh, a lie about marriage. You know, I've talked about this before. Law, in one sense, is, is pedagogical. It teaches us things about what is right, about what is wrong. And because uh, 12 Republican senators didn't have courage, um, we're going to, in our law, tell something that is untrue about something as fundamental as marriage And that's not a good thing for our society.
1: Now, David, one of the interesting parts of these conversations for me was the theological arguments, essentially, that were made in support of this legislation and the redefinition of marriage. Uh, some of those came from Senator Lummis from Wyoming. Now, she uh, claimed on the floor to be a Christian, and I cannot challenge her on that point. But in her defense of this position, what she said is that it's important for us to be tolerant. And though I think same-sex marriage is wrong, this is her. Uh, this is paraphr- me paraphrasing her, uh, same-sex marriage is wrong. I agree with my church. I don't think that's what it is. Personally, I'm opposed to it. But it's important that we tolerate each other. Therefore, I am going to vote to change the definition of marriage in federal statute. What's your response to this idea that uh, tolerance compels Christians uh, to support same-sex marriage in the law?
7: Yeah, I think that's just a faulty theological argument, Joseph. Uh, And and think about just if you took that argument to its logical conclusion, uh, that tolerance is kind of our prevailing ethic. Uh, what, you know, where do you draw the line on what you do tolerate and what you don't tolerate? And, and the idea that Senator Loomis was saying is that there's a Christian understanding of marriage and then some sort of secular understanding of marriage. Uh, that that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It doesn't work. It's problematic. But, but I think the, the point you made a second ago, Joseph, on how this is a discipleship issue, I think that's absolutely critical. I looked uh, right before I came on the program, uh, our colleague George Barna did a poll of evangelicals who regularly attend church. So not just people who might identify as Christian, but those who regularly attend church. And 34% of them just two years ago, reject the idea that marriage is between a man and a woman. And so, again, I think this shows to your uh, more broad point, Joseph, that there is a lack of discipleship. And that lack of discipleship is why you end up getting arguments made on the Senate floor that although marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman biblically defined, We can open up marriage to include another definition that will allow for same sex marriage, which biblically thinking that's just gibberish.
1: Yeah, and and to that point, and one of the reasons I do think this is a discipleship issue. I've heard a lot of people make the argument that, well, we're not being persuasive in the culture, and the numbers bear that out. That is certainly true, that we're not persuading uh, the church, the, the culture to agree with the Christian position on marriage. In fact, the opposite is true, and the data that you just cited there is evidence of that, that the culture is actually doing a very effective job of convincing the church to think like the culture with respect to marriage. And to me, that is not a reason to stop talking about marriage. And and the primary reason that we inside the church need to continue uh, the apologetic and really the discipleship and the formation around this fundamental institution is not because we're going to persuade the people on MSNBC and CNN to agree with us. It's because we're losing the people in our pews on this issue. And one of the reasons I think that is true It's because they see the timid, kind of afraid, slightly embarrassed way we talk about that. The people in the church see their fellow parishioners uh, kind of ashamed of what they think the Bible says about it. And so they end up just drifting naturally toward those who look confident in their position. And if the church cannot speak with one voice, and I would argue that the church is not speaking with one voice, because we have as many people in the church saying, well, Either same sex marriage is a moral good, or at least it's just not that big of a deal as we do. Uh, those in the church clearly saying what God thinks about this issue. So when we are a house divided, it's no wonder that we're not effectively communicating the message to the culture in a way that they're understanding. So to me, yeah, you got to get it done inside first, but a lot of us, I think, are making the argument that well, we should stop talking inside the church because it's not working outside the church. That doesn't make sense, does it?
7: No, it doesn't make sense. And I think you know part of this conversation that we just need to emphasize, Joseph, is sure the United States Senate. There were sixty-one senators that voted uh, to, to approve the so-called Respect for Marriage Act. is going to go to the House, and Joe Biden will sign into law. But regardless, what the U.S. Senate, the United States House of Representatives, or even the President of the United States says. At the end of the day, the definition of marriage actually has not changed. Uh, God's good design for human flourishing, bringing a husband and a wife together in holy matrimony, that has not changed. The goods of marriage, that has not changed. And so we need to continue as the church to speak that truth in love. And, uh, and once it's double down, it's going to make us more countercultural. But again, the, the flourishing and thriving that comes in a marriage, that has not changed regardless of what our politicians tell us.
1: And one final point on that. The reason we need to understand the benefit of God's understanding of marriage is that our kids are going to get married. And if they get married accepting the secular premise for what marriage is about, they're going to have a tough go of it, right? So once they, once we understand uh, what marriage is for, what it's about, that it's not for us, uh, it benefits us, but it's not primarily for us. So we don't treat it like it's it's for us. Then we have good marriages, and then our lives and our culture is a testimony to an increasingly dark culture about what the goodness of marriage was intended to be. David Kloss, and we are now out of time, but thank you so much for joining us once again.
7: Thank you, Joseph.
1: And friends, we do thank you for being with us this week. We have tracked this marriage issue again. It's going to go to the House for a vote on Tuesday is when that is expected. Continue to be in prayer over the weekend, not just for the House, not just for the Senate, not just for our country, but also for your family. And commit to apologizing, to making the argument, to understanding, to applying what God has said about this and marriage in your life as well as our country. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God, but nothing else.
0: Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported.